0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we look to his word and ask him for his help. We desperately need it. He's faithful to give it. So let's ask him now. Our father in heaven, we come to you as we do every Lord's day when we look to your word. And we acknowledge that we're helpless in and of ourselves to do anything good in this time. And so we ask quite simply that you would pour your Holy Spirit out upon us, that you would fill me with your spirit as the preacher of your word. And that you would pour your spirit out on all of us. That we might have eyes to see the truth. That we might have hearts that would love the truth. Father, our prayer is also that you would come and that you by your spirit would show us yourself within your word. We pray that you would show us ourselves there. And we pray that you would show us our savior. We pray these things in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, one thing that I would never advise uh, one of the younger preacher guys in our church to do is to give multiple introductions to a sermon. So I'm going to break my rule right now. Uh, So I have one introduction written. I'll get to part of that in just a moment. But I wanted to just talk with you uh, for a minute. It's July the 4th weekend, a holiday weekend. So some in our church, we know, are out of town, hopefully getting good rest, enjoying time with family. We had a very joyful day yesterday, many of us with the wedding of Mackenzie Dinkins and now his wife, Abby Dinkins. There that is. So that was a really great day. The rehearsal Friday night was a lot of fun. So there's been a lot of joy. There's some rest and those kinds of things going on for many of our number this weekend even. And I'm also aware that many of us, myself included, are quite weary and feel the grind of life in this fallen world. There are people dealing with physical sickness, many of whom are not with us today. And there are other folks that have just difficult things going on. When I pulled in the parking lot this morning, I was feeling that weariness and feeling that just drained, kind of ground down feeling. And I saw the cars in the parking lot, the people who had gotten here before me. And I thought, God, thank you for the church. Thank you for these people that I get to live life with, like in your grace and in your kindness. And then I also thought there's nowhere I'd rather be than here. Because this is a group of people, by God's grace, we understand what we're doing when we come here. We don't come here because we have it all together. We don't come here because we've just killed it this week. We come here because we do understand that we need Christ above all things. And so we come and we look to Jesus, who is our sufficiency and who is our righteousness. And so we begin a new sermon series today through the Gospel of Mark. I hope that you're excited. I am. Uh, We as a church for the last couple of years or so have been looking at wonderful portions of God's word. We've spent time in Galatians and the Psalms and 1 John and just wrapped up a sermon series through Micah. And we've considered all of those books from a redemptive historical perspective. So in other words, we've considered how from those books of the Bible that the scripture is ultimately about Christ. It's about Jesus The Bible is about God's plan of redemption accomplished through Christ. And so I'm excited for us now to get to spend 22 weeks, at least the next 22 times that I'm in the pulpit, best we know. To look pointedly at the life and the ministry of Jesus. It'll be a great thing for us as a body of believers, I trust. So just a brief word on the Gospels in general. The goal of the gospel writers was simply to provide a record of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Their goal was not to write a full biography. Their goal was not to even give a complete account of Christ's public ministry. They didn't just write a collection of anecdotes about Christ. So this is not like flannel board Jesus stuff, right? They didn't set out to write a handbook even on Jesus' ethics. The gospel writers wrote from the perspective of redemptive history. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's how they wrote. They aim quite clearly to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the promised one. He is the Redeemer. He is the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies delivered in the Old Testament. And so that is going to really matter for us in terms of our perspective as we make our way through this book. So I don't know about you. Let's let's look to God's word now. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do open them up to Mark's gospel. So this is the second book of the New Testament. So if you find Matthew, bank right, and the next book is Mark, we will have the verses from today's text up on the screen. So if you didn't bring your Bible today, don't sweat that you'll still be able to follow along with us while you are making your way to Mark chapter one and verse one. Let me give a few brief words about just the author of the book and even just some background information. So the author, as you know, from the title that is in your Bibles is a man named Mark, John Mark more specifically. This man is mentioned a number of times in the book of Acts, as you read your way through that, as well as in the writings of Paul. The final greetings in 1 Peter indicate that Peter and Mark were quite close. Peter refers to Mark as my son. So this would have been a a term of endearment, my son even in the faith. So it has been the consensus from the earliest years of church history that Mark in his gospel essentially provides us Peter's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Evidence also suggests that Mark was the first gospel written for those of you who are interested in those kinds of things. And along with Matthew and Luke would have been written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so now that we've considered those brief things, all of this by way of introduction, Let's look to the text now. We're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. So before we go any further, I want to read God's word for us. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I want to begin our time together in considering these 13 verses with a question. A question. What is Mark about? That's the question. What is Mark about? You want authorial intent? What did the author intend to communicate? He gives it to us in verse one. Put your eyes on it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This book quite simply is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the son of God. There we have it. Jesus is the Messiah, the savior. He is the son of God. So Mark, in other words, is laying it out for us This book is about Jesus, who he is, and what he came to do. These first 13 verses that we're going to be looking at today, they're significant. They're kind of a a table setter for the rest of the book. Because in verse 14, the transition is going to happen to the public ministry of Christ. And that public ministry, we know, will culminate in his death and in his resurrection. But in these first 13 verses, Mark is going to give us some really important foundational truth about who Jesus is. And also about the role that he is going to play in accomplishing redemption. So I want to do now turn our attention to verses two through 13. And we're going to make our way through those three verses by considering the significance of three things. Those three things are going to be first, John the Baptist. What's the significance of John? Second, what's the significance of the baptism of Jesus? And then third, what's the significance of the temptation of Jesus? What do these things mean? Why are they here? So let's consider the first of those three things, the significance of John the Baptist. So the first thing that we can say is that along with Jesus, the coming of John was also foretold by the prophets. This one who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, the messenger who would come before the Christ would show up. This is John. The prophet Isaiah is referenced specifically by Mark and the prophet Malachi is also alluded to, cited here to help explain Isaiah 40, verse three. So you see this in verses two and three. As it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Those are words from Malachi to help us understand these words. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. So what's the point of John's life What's the point of John's ministry? Quite simply, John came to prepare the way for the Lord. Or more specifically, we could say, John came to prepare the way for the Christ who is the Lord. John occupies a unique place in redemptive history. because you realize, we've talked about this a number of times, how the Bible begins in Genesis with the beginning of all things, at least in terms of time and space and then begins to reveal to us God's plan of redemption unfolding after the original fall of human beings. This promise is made that one is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent, and all those things start to happen after that to see redemption fulfilled and accomplished. A number of covenants are given, but we realize that redemptive history progresses through time and space. And so John occupies a very unique place in that linear progression of redemptive history. He is, in one sense, the last Old Covenant prophet. He is the forerunner of the Messiah, as we've already said. So he plays a significant role in ushering in the New Covenant era. Because the New Covenant era starts with the coming of the Christ. The last days begin with the coming of the Christ. And so John is there almost like a post, a stake in the ground, like, hey, this is about to happen. His ministry is one of transition from one era of redemptive history to another. His baptism, we see that he was baptizing people. So verse four, he was baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem are going out to him. That just means a lot of people. It doesn't literally mean every single human, but it means that a lot of people are going out to him. Okay, his baptism. It's a type of the ceremonial washing and cleansing that was instituted under the Levitical law. And it was a pointer, we're going to think about this more in a minute, to the baptism that would be the sign of the new covenant. So even this, this kind of baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins is a transitionary thing. We're moving out of Levitical law, old covenant structures of ceremonial washings and cleansings and all those things. And we're moving towards this sign of the new covenant, baptism. We're going to think more about that in just a moment. What was John's message? We see that he's preaching in verses seven and eight, other than saying, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, there's one coming after me. There's one coming after me who's greater than me. I baptized you with water, but he's going to do something far greater than that. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John, it's clear. He doesn't understand everything. That's obvious even from other texts. He doesn't understand everything about his role. He's a human being like you and me. But he does clearly understand that his job, like you got one job, bro, kind of thing. He understands that his job is to prepare the way for the Messiah. There's one greater than me coming. His ministry and baptism are greater than my ministry and my baptism. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. This is massively huge. This is a promise the prophets had made. Think about Joel. In the days, the last days, the Holy Spirit will be poured out. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, right? That's going to happen. The Spirit is going to be given. And so this is why, in thinking about even how John talks about Jesus, we see the transition into the new covenant era happening. He's greater than me. His ministry is greater than mine. His baptism is different than mine. I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you the Spirit. And this is why Christian baptism in the new covenant era is different than the baptism of John. Christian baptism is the new covenant sign administered to people who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit by Jesus. It's the sign given to people who have been born again by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. So a quick note before we move on from John. A quick note on his clothing, because like nothing's insignificant in Scripture, because we're told here that he's wearing a garment of camel's hair. I'm sort of glad that we don't dress like that now, and he's got a leather belt around his waist. but like why that detail? Why that detail? It's not an irrelevant detail. It connects him to the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who in 2 Kings 1, we're told that Elijah also wore a garment of hair with a leather belt. Why does that matter? Well, it's because John, we know in terms of redemptive history, John is the Elijah who is to come. He is the fulfillment of this Elijah-like prophet who would come before the Messiah. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. John is the Elijah who was to come before the great an awesome day of the Lord. Just a little tidbit right there that if we have eyes to see, it helps us to understand more John's role. That would be confirmed by Jesus himself. Jesus talks about John and says that he he is the Elijah, he has come. So there that is for you. Mark puts John here at the beginning of his gospel to make it clear these things. That what the prophets predicted about the forerunner of the Christ has happened. Mark puts John at the beginning of his gospel also to make clear that what the prophets predicted about the Christ is happening, has happened. Which brings us to our second point for consideration. What is the significance of the baptism of Jesus? The significance of the baptism of Jesus. So this is gonna be looking at verses nine through 11 together. So we see in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So right here, friends, a significant observation to make. This is not maybe the main, main point of this, but it's just a huge piece of this, is that we see all three persons of the Godhead present in the baptism of Christ. At the start of his public ministry, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit show up on the scene. The Spirit descends from the heavens and falls on Jesus Christ, God the Son who took on flesh. And then God the Father speaks from the heavens and says, this is my Son. If there were any doubt, this is my Son. And I am well pleased with Him. We see the father's love for the son in this text. You are my beloved son or my son whom I love. We also see the father's pleasure in the son in this text. With you, I am well pleased, he says. God, the father delights in God, the son. That's an awesome thought that within the persons of the Godhead, there is joy and love and delight in one another. The father delights in the son for who he is. And the father also delights in the son for what the son was accomplishing. See, the father and the son made a covenant before the ages began. In eternity past, A decision was made and a covenant was made that there would be people out of the mass of fallen humanity redeemed, saved by God the Son who would take on flesh and do it. This was always the plan. Like that's a mind blower. As we look in time and space, this is happening. Like what was planned eternity ago? is unfolding in time and space. And the father says, I love you, son, and I am well pleased in what you are about to do. It's pretty cool stuff. All right, other huge questions. So that's like one big piece of what's going on here. The other big piece in the baptism of Christ, this question, why did Jesus get baptized? Why? So Mark gives us just a kind of flyover version, right? 30,000 feet. He doesn't want us to get lost in the trees. He wants us to see the forest, right? Matthew gives us a lot more detail about the baptism of Jesus. He gives us a little bit of detail in particular about an interchange between Jesus and John. So when Jesus came from Galilee, just like Mark says in verse nine, and was baptized by John in the Jordan, there was a conversation that happened. Matthew's account reads this way. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and following for those who'd like to jot that down. John would have prevented him by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? It's a legit question, right? But then Jesus answers him. What does he say? Jesus says, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented to baptize him. Okay, so why did Jesus get baptized? Let's rule out the things that he did not get baptized for. He did not get baptized for his own sake. He had no sin. So he did not need John's baptism, repentance and remission of sins. He didn't need those things. Okay, so if he didn't do that, do the baptism piece for that reason. Why did he do it? He did it using his own words in order to fulfill all righteousness, but for who? Not for himself, for you and me. I came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for his own sake. He did it for us. He did it in the place of his people. He came. We talk about this regularly, but we can't hear this enough. He did not come just to die. He came to live. He came to live a perfect life in fulfillment of the law in every way. He came to fulfill all of the righteous requirements of God, every single one of them perfectly. And so that's what he's doing, even in getting baptized. He did it for you and for me. So that that life of perfect righteousness, that perfect record could be counted to us by faith. It's a big deal. All right, so let's consider thirdly the significance of the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. I hope this is helpful to you as we think about how this is setting the table for what's about to happen. In his public ministry, the ministry of Christ, that is. So now we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 we see there that the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness and that he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Okay. First observation is that this was the Holy Spirit's doing. He drove Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this was no accident. This was not arbitrary. This didn't just happen. This was a crucial part of the plan. So then the million dollar question again, what's going on here? What's going on with Christ being driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? So we to understand this rightly, we got to go back to the beginning. You go back to the beginning of this book, the book of Genesis, the first three chapters where God makes everything and it's really good. And then he makes human beings uniquely in his image. And he makes an agreement, a covenant with Adam and Eve. He tells them a number of things that are good for them to do, to fill the earth and subdue it. He tells them that they should multiply. He tells them that it's good for them to cultivate the earth, to develop it. They would be God's image bearers, his representatives in the creation. They would rule in one sense and have dominion over the creation as God's vice rulers, vice regents even. But then God gives them one prohibition. He says, you can eat of anything. All these wonderful plants and this produce, you can eat of any of them. But there's one tree you're not to touch. You're not to eat of it. And if you do, in the day that you do that, you will die. It's a covenant. Do these things and it will go well. Do this thing and you die. Okay, and we know what happened after that. Satan came into the garden and tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and God, because he is a righteous God, pronounced judgment, pronounced the curse on humanity and the rest of creation. So when we see this, Jesus being driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. These are the things that we need to see. Adam was tempted in a paradise and failed. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, in a wasteland, and succeeded. We know that he resisted the devil for 40 days. Again, in Matthew and Luke, we get the details of the three different temptations that Satan, at least that are recorded for us, that Satan throws at him. Adam had everything going for him. Jesus had everything stacked against him. Adam doubted and questioned God's word when he was tempted by Satan. Jesus trusted and cited God's word when he was tempted by Satan. Satan got the better of Adam and Jesus shut Satan down. Adam fell and Jesus triumphed. So here's the the point. Like I've got it in bold letters in my outline. Jesus is the second and better Adam. That's what's going on. Jesus is the second and better Adam. That's the point of his temptation. he has come to right everything that went wrong he has come to reverse all the effects of the curse it's what we sing of in that wonderful hymn joy to the world he comes to make his blessings known right? far as the curse is found he comes to succeed in every way that our first father failed in adam we fell. In Adam, we're dead. In Christ, we have life forever because he succeeded. But notice too that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. That number 40 is a big number in scripture. It's not arbitrary or significant, at least from my perspective, as I'm studying the text and looking at it. Not only is Jesus the second and better Adam, there's another sort of group of people that he represents specifically from the Old Testament. So we think about how many years did Israel wander in the wilderness after the Exodus? 40 years. They, when they were in the wilderness, grumbled and sinned against God all the time. So too, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. So it's also appropriate in one sense to say that he is the new and true and better Israel. Our dispensationalist friends might not like that too much, but it's okay. I, Yeah, there we go. So we're going to move forward from these three considerations of these significant pieces of the text. And I want to just consider with you this. Like, what's the primary takeaway? We've considered this wonderful stuff. We've thought about these great truths about Christ and who he is and ultimately like what he's coming to do. Like his ministry is about redemption. His ministry is about Writing every wrong and reversing the effects of the curse and doing what Adam didn't and bringing God's people back to God and bringing God's people into the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth forever. That's what his ministry is about. That's why he came. What's the primary takeaway? Like what's the application? It's pretty simple. At least from my perspective, it's pretty simple. All right, Jesus is the Christ. Right, write that down. He is the son of God, meaning he is God, the son, eternally existent, who took on flesh 2000 years ago and at that point became Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was prophesied from of old and he came. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He is the second and better Adam. He came to save his people. So here's the takeaway. In light of all that exhortation, trust him, trust him, believe upon him. Cast yourself completely on him. Rest in him. Right. Like that is always it's the first and greatest and final application of scripture. There are plenty of other applications. But this one ought to be if, if this application is not in every sermon I preach, fire me, fire me. So trust Christ. Do not trust yourself. I don't care what the world says to you. Man, we live in a culture where we want to trust ourselves. It's always been true though, right? Nothing new under the sun. Don't trust in yourself. Why? Because you're like me. You're a wretch, man. You're messed up. Like I am very aware, even this morning, aware of my frailties and my struggles and the wrestlings of my heart. I trust many in the room would raise your hand and say, me too, man. It's the Lord's Day morning. We're coming to service. And it's like, man, my heart is wrecked before I even get here. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your good works either. Praise God that the believers in the room, the spirit of God is producing fruit in you. Be encouraged by that right? Encourage one another in that. And don't trust it though. Don't trust it in terms of the ground of your standing before God. Don't trust fruit as the ground of your justification. Celebrate it, be encouraged by it, but trust Christ alone. Don't look to your performance. We, oh man, like this is big. We all are like this. We are so prone to be feeling good even about coming to church on sunday or going to community group or oh i'm i'm going to go hang out with some friends from church and i'm kind of excited to do it because i've been absolutely crushing it this week in my quiet times right this is what we do we're wired this way we feel better about ourselves when we understand ourselves to be performing well and then we're really self-conscious and beat down when we understand ourselves to be struggling don't look to your performance I'm not saying don't care. I'm just say don't look to it. On the flip side, or maybe not, this just kind of goes with what I just said. Don't delude yourself into thinking that you've got this Christianity thing down. <laughs> That's just craziness. For anybody who's self-aware and sane, like we don't have it down. We have our good moments, we have our good days, we have our good seasons, and we don't have it now. And then, this is kind of the flip side of it. When you're not doing well, when you're struggling, when whatever, pick your thing, right? Whenever your, your time in the word is just flat. Like I'm I'm reading and I'm just like, I'm just like banging my head against the page. My time in prayer feels cold. Or maybe it hadn't happened in a, like a minute, right? And I'm, my prayer life just feels stagnant. Or, man, I am just really, really aware of my battle with this sin. Like it is rearing its head. I'm not sure where it even came from. And it just seems to be after me. And it's getting the better of me too much. When your failures, are like right in front of your face and you are reminded of your not only failings, but of your frailty and your weakness. What what do you do other than run to Christ? Look to Jesus. Trust him. That's like the takeaway. So often we sung about it this morning. The first verse of that song we sang, I will trust my Savior Jesus, the words are poignant. I will trust my Savior Jesus when my darkest doubts befall. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. To believe, to trust, and to rest in Jesus is the most fundamental battle of the Christian life. I'm going to say that again. If you're a note taker, write it down. To believe, to trust, and to rest in Jesus is the most fundamental battle of the Christian life. There are plenty of other battles that are a big deal. There are all kinds of wars that we fight on a number of fronts in the Christian life. None more basic than this. None more fundamental than this. So in one sense, as we're kind of continuing to think about this big takeaway, this huge application of trust Christ, here's another aspect of it. Take your gaze and your focus off of you. Take your gaze and your focus off of your circumstances. Take your gaze and your focus off of your performance and put it completely on the Lord Jesus. And here's the amazing piece. It's counterintuitive at the human level. When we do that, when we actually kind of get over ourselves and take our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and how we're doing, and we really do imperfectly but sincerely look to Christ, amazing things happen. Everything starts to change and we change. See, the argument in the, is kind of like raised. The objection is sort of logged against this kind of faith alone gospel that if you tell people trust Christ as the primary takeaway and you kind of beat that drum all the time, then people aren't going to change. They're going to remain morally lax. They're not going to be sanctified. To which, again, I could not disagree more biblically. We are transformed as we behold the Lord Jesus. As we look away from ourselves and behold Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, underneath that, we can have all kinds of conversations, and we do, about what's good for us to do, what's bad and we should flee from. Like, if it's sin, run from it. If God says it's good, do those things. Right? Like it's simple in that sense. And we talk about it and we give each other counsel and we seek wisdom all underneath this banner of brother, sister, look to Christ. The Christian life is absolutely outwardly focused. Absolutely. If the Christian life becomes inwardly focused where all you're looking at is this That's wrong. The Christian life is outwardly focused. Love God, trust Christ, love neighbor. None of that is directly you. And remember this. The reason that it kind of blows our minds, like, oh, well, if I stop being like overly concerned about myself, I actually will change. The reason that happens is because sanctification is not your work. Sanctification is not something you do. The Holy Spirit of God sanctifies, period. Now, do you participate in it? Do I participate in it? Yes. Just like I participate in life by being alive. I do stuff, right? The Holy Spirit sanctifies and he uses things that seem so ordinary. Things that are so ordinary at points that we don't even perceive it. He uses those ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary ends, namely conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is faithful. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, right? He who called you is faithful. Like before that, he says, may the the Lord sanctify you completely, right? And then he says, he who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. That's why it breaks our brains because it's, Well, if we don't just always talk about what we've got to be doing, 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 and if we don't make it a bunch of rules, and if we don't like threaten people into obedience, then they're never going to obey. To which we say, friend, you've not understood the gospel. You have not understood the new birth. Those who have beheld Christ, those who trust Christ, those who have been baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit, and have the Holy Spirit of God living within them, will be sanctified. And our sanctification is as certain as our justification and our glorification. That's it's why we can rest. A healthy posture as we're kind of landing the plane. A healthy and I think a liberating posture in light of Christ, who he is and what he's done is to say, okay, the main thing in my life that I am going to concern myself with above all other things is to believe in and trust the Lord Jesus. Start there. And having trusted Christ, I know I'm secure. I know I'm safe. I know that I am good with God and He is good with me. And now, out of reverence for Christ, out of love for God, out of love for my neighbor. I'm going to love God. I'm going to love my neighbor. And I'm going to do that most practically beginning with this group of brothers and sisters with whom I have covenanted in this church. This is a simple thing. It is incredibly deep, but the Christian life is not complicated. It's a sad thing that we have complicated it to death. Trust Christ, love God, love neighbor, Lean into the church. I mean, that's if we thought about those things and made those things the focus, we would be doing quite well. Friends, I hope that our time, even at the beginning of Mark's gospel, has made it clear that everything, or just maybe it's a further demonstration. That's a better way to put it. That everything that's revealed in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Like the reason that stuff is in the Old Testament, is because Christ was coming. Like, it's not the other way around. Oh, like God said, okay, let's, let's give the law and let's give the sacrificial system and all these kinds of things. And then, okay, Jesus, you come and fulfill that. <laughs> no, It's because Christ was coming that all of that existed in the first place. The writer of the Hebrews tells us those things were mere shadows pointing to the real thing. Christ who's coming to redeem his people. So everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. It anticipates his coming. Everything revealed in the Old Testament makes it clear why Jesus had to come. Because beginning with Adam, all the way through the history of Israel, God's people have sinned, have failed. They have not kept the covenant. So somebody had to come and keep it. And it also, everything revealed in the Old Testament makes Jesus obvious when he shows up. That's why, like when we start looking through this gospel and we think through everything that he's doing and saying and accomplishing, it's like, oh, wow. like that's He's obviously the Christ. He's doing everything that the Christ needed to do. The Bible is the story of God's work in redemption for his own glory. And Jesus is the hero of the story. He is the redeemer. All of God's requirements are met in him. All of God's purposes are accomplished through him. And so we're going to make our way through the gospel of Mark with those lenses on. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, there's more to come. I'm excited. I hope you are too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus and in his righteousness and in his merit. And we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We know that prayers need to be prayed just as much after the sermon as before. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and your truth and drive it deep into our hearts. We pray that you would be sustaining our faith in Christ By your word, we pray that you would even impart faith to those who have not yet trusted Christ through your word. We do pray that we would believe. We pray that you would help our unbelief. We pray that we would trust Jesus completely. We do pray, Father, as we come to the Lord's table now, that you would be with us by your spirit. That you would minister to us through this sacrament that you have given us. We pray that as we come in faith, we would be strengthened and encouraged and sustained as we reflect together as a body on what Christ has done in our place. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.